Okay. Today, I welcome Christian Posta. He's uh, the field CTO at Solo and uh, very excited to talk with him again. Uh, I've known Christian for, I don't know, maybe like five years or so. We we met up in uh, at the uh, Phoenix DDD meetup and you gave a talk there and uh, we've kept in touch, had gone and visited, had some drinks together and stuff like that. So, um, but not since the pandemic. So it's good to good to see you again here on the podcast, Christian. Welcome. Yeah, it's it's been a while, and I appreciate you having me on. So, um, Christian, you when I met you, you were uh, a chief architect at Red Hat, which um, you know is a, one of the few companies that has really made a sensational um, you know success of open source software. And, um, you know, starting with Linux, um, but improved offerings over the years, acquired JBoss, um, you know, different kinds of investments. So let's start off with just what was that environment like for you? Very large company. And then we'll contrast that with uh, Solo, where you are now. So tell us a bit about being a chief architect at Red Hat. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Red Hat still has a very uh, fond memory for me and good place in my heart here. Um, you know, I learned a lot at Red Hat. Uh, I, I, I ended up into Red Hat through an acquisition uh, through an open source company called FuseSource that got acquired in. But, um, you know, Red Hat historically was in the open source um, commoditization business where they would take something like a Unix or Windows or something, and and then have an open source alternative, and you saw the same thing with JBoss and so on. But with their experience in Linux and a lot of the innovation that was happening in Linux, they were in a great position to, um, you know, use open source to innovate and kind of change some of the the direction the uh, industry was going. And you know, while I was there, Docker. Kubernetes, all of those things were coming up. So I got exposed to that, uh, you know, Kubernetes probably in 2013, 2014, before it was sort of a public thing. And, uh, you know, started to to fast forward. What 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 is it that organizations are going to be able to do with this? How does that change application development, architecture? Um, what are some of the innovations that are happening around this new, you know, containers, Kubernetes, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that I, I learned a lot. I worked with a lot of customers, very early adopters of these technologies and help push them, help push them forward, help, uh, you know, explore new ways to solve, uh, some, some old problems, but in this new, in this new world. So, uh, it was awesome, uh, working at Red Hat. If you would, uh, Christian, tell us about how do you see Kubernetes solving a set of problems for an enterprise or a startup or whoever, right? What, what does it really do? Yeah. Kubernetes is uh, a great uh, piece of technology that is uh, one part to the puzzle. <laughs> um, you know, we, we just, I don't know if you know who Brian Gracely is, but he, he uh, uh, runs the Cloudcast podcast, but he uh, recently joined Solo. And I was just listening to him uh, a few hours ago. And one of the things he said is organizations don't wake up, however big or small, saying, hey, I have a Kubernetes problem or I have a service mesh problem. 
Um, they, they have a, how, how do we reach more customers problem? How do we give better experiences problem, right? Um, and, and, and technology in many ways is a big part of how you deliver some of those solutions. And so how do you make your developers more productive? Um, how do you, you know, enable them to um, get applications, get code changes, get these things out faster? And that's where things like Kubernetes comes in and other pieces, right? So Kubernetes is one part, part of the puzzle. Um, you know, so from a deeper technology standpoint, it's really about how do you take a, an application which in the past, you know, we would, I remember working for a big bank um, in previous years, like we would, we would take the application, we would, I would build it locally on, uh, let me see, I had a Windows machine, deployed into WebLogic, I'd build it locally, I'd try to make this thing work. And then I would, you know, open up a ticket, fill out this XML thing and pass it on to somebody else who said, all right, let me take that and put that into the IST environment. And then they would put it in there, would do some integration to end up, it wouldn't work, but why not? I don't know, the environment's kind of different. Uh, well, it worked on six of the seven WebLogic servers. Um, then you get into UAT and production and then you repeat the whole thing, right? Uh, Docker came along and said, well, how do, how do we reduce some of that configuration drift? How do we package things up a little bit nicer so that you can move it from one spot to the other? K Kubernetes came in and said, well, let's take those containers and run it on a bunch of machines. But you shouldn't really think about all of that. You should just think that, hey, I'm providing a service. And there's an application providing some services. It's scaled, I helped check, all that started, stopped all that stuff. You don't have to worry about uh, that. Um, and that forms the foundation of the platform, the abstraction that then you can continue to build uh, additional capabilities on. Great explanation. Um, one of my challenges has been uh, convincing people that, um, you know, while Kubernetes has a set of problems to solve, it doesn't create great services in themselves, right? So, so um, you know, my my um, story is around domain-driven design and microservices. And one thing that I have appreciated about knowing you is, um, is that you're practical in that sense. In fact, one of the talks that you gave at the DDD meetup was about uh, domain-driven design and using um, microservices and how you know, that kind of fits into to, um, the whole big picture. And so I've, I've found you to be very balanced in that way. Do you have any advice for people like to, how to balance the, you know, Kubernetes and, and, you know, with the actual value of, of business driven, um, software? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, as tech, it, it's kind of hard because as technologists, we're very excited about the new thing and, you know, at, at times, whether right or wrong, it's reality. People are looking out for, well, what is my next thing going to be? <laughs> Where else? What can I learn to do and do to be more valuable? Um, and, and so that that creates a uh, you know what, what, what are the what are the what are the what are you what are you, what are you trying to balance? But if you're if you're honest about what is the problems what are the problems that I need to solve? What is the, what are the what are the goals and things that I need to do to achieve uh, those outcomes? 
um, then I think you, you know, that, that, that's what it is. It's the te technological intellectual honesty about what is the problem you're trying to solve. Um, uh, and, uh, and I've always been, cause I, cause I, I think earlier in my career, I saw probably at this big bank, but, and then previous companies, I would, I would see the, the vendors come in and sell this panacea. If you buy this massive thing for untold amounts of money that you will achieve these business outcomes. And sure enough, people bought into it, deployed it, uh, you know, and we just replaced the old crap with the new crap and did exactly the same thing. Um, and so I think, I think coming up in my career, that that's something that I, I, I did not want to repeat if I could help it. Um, and so when I, when I talk about technology and, um, you know, figuring out what that balance is, it's about, all right, well, let's, let's, let's take it incrementally. Let's actually see outcomes. Uh, let's, the, the goal is to improve and to, you know, and, and, and to be outcome driven. And, and if we're not seeing that, then stop. Um, you know, I wrote a blog, let's see, this might be a two and a half years ago now, but about why Istio was, and that's the open source service mesh community that I've been involved with for, for a long time, but why Istio is a great example of when not to do microservices. And that, so that, that was the headline trying to catch people's eye. But what I covered in there was Istio's journey from 1.0 to, you know, 1.5 with a bunch of releases, about a year and a half that went through, went, went past there, where the Istio community changed their position on, well, Istio is built and deployed as a bunch of microservices. Maybe it shouldn't be. Right. And again, it was very outcome focused. It was very um, just because everybody's doing microservices. And, and actually, there was a lot of thought that went into. We believe this. This was the premise that we believe Istio as a as a platform, the way people will run it. The different capabilities that Istio provides will probably be run by different teams. Um, you know, a, a lot of the initial architecture came out of Google and that's the way they thought about it. Uh, how would you run this as a service? In reality, when people took it and ran it, ran Istio, it was not that. It was a single team, maybe even a single person operating uh, the, the mesh or automating it away in such a way that the fact that it was microservices didn't benefit them anything. In fact, it hurt them. Uh, operationally, it's more complex upgrading and all this stuff was, was, was more complex. There was extra communication between the services that was unnecessary. Um, from a security standpoint, you know, all of those microservices had to have elevated privileges because they weren't doing different things. They were all kind of doing the same. So, you know, long story short, they changed. And, uh, you know, and I, thought, I thought it was a great move and I wanted to help you know, talk, I want to talk about it publicly, but it goes back to be pragmatic. Um, you know, what, what is the outcome? What, what, what is the user experience that you want? What is the, the, the surface look like? And, uh, and don't just do it just because, Hey, this is the new thing or, you know, some vendor told me this. 
right? So yeah, I don't know. It's just sort sort of my my experiences drove a lot of that. Yeah, and I think thank you that it's a really good explanation, and I think this um, segues very well into your role at Solo and Solo itself. So Solo is innovating in the area of containers with service mesh. And essentially what they're doing is saying, everybody out there doesn't have to be an expert at Kubernetes and at service mesh. You're commoditizing this. And so go to the experts, go to Solo, um, get this operational um, software and run it. Right, just put your services, whatever they they happen to be, whether they're monoliths or microservices or whatever, just deploy them, and now focus on the business again, right? And and this is where the real value is for them. Right. I mean, we talk with people who are interested, so are on that modernization journey, and what what they care about is when they're providing the end services platform. And so on to their developers, to uh, to enable their developers, they need to build capabilities like failover, like they need to think about how do applications stay highly available, um, how do we how do we get telemetry and tracing all this stuff between the application and do it in a consistent way, because they're they're supporting you know on Kubernetes and Docker and all this stuff you can run. Node.js, the same way as the Java applications, the same way as the Golang, and, and so on, right? But to get uniformity and to get consistency across not just the languages are important, but also they're going from an on-premises environment to a public cloud environment. And there's significant differences between VMware, on-prem, OpenStack type stuff than what's in AWS or what's in Azure. And what we what we focus on, what we care about, is solving that that problem for for them, which is they need to they need to give their developers these capabilities, and they need to do it in a way that's scalable. And to be able to do that, it has to be simple and consistent and unified, and put that across you know wherever they deploy their applications. Um, and so that's those are the things that we focus at the application networking layer. That's where the service mesh part fits in. Um, that's where the you know the the modern API gateways they they fit in. Um, and we're pushing the boundaries on a lot of this technology, like bringing in things like eBPF uh, to optimize uh, some of, some of the networking, putting GraphQL, you know, building GraphQL into the service mesh. And we see this area of networking as, uh, as, as sort of the foundation for additional capabilities that can be simplified and delivered to, uh, to end users and developers. Just like Kubernetes kind of spawned the, um, the innovation that happened on top of it. Being able to connect things, secure things, understand what's happening on the network, that, that, that itself also enables a, a, a wide uh, um, you know, a, a wave of innovation that happens on top of it. Yeah, and thank you. And um, two, what I would say is, for those who have gained very good experience in Kubernetes and other technologies around that, they should probably talk to Solo about using that expertise on your team. Because what, you started out as employee number five at Solo. Now you're more than 100 people. I think 
and you've recently gotten $135 million of investment on top of, I, I don't know, what was that, round C or something like that? Or B? That yeah. was Series C yeah. that, that yeah. we had, so, yeah. So, um, so you're in a really good position to hire the, the right people for your team. Can you tell us about that? Like, so you go from this, I don't even know, to yeah. at least tens of thousands of people in, in Red Hat, maybe a hundred thousand or more. I don't even, I don't, yeah. I didn't, haven't looked, but you go from that to employee number five. Wow. That's a big leap. Yeah, that was uh that was a really big leap. Um, and, uh, and actually what was funny is, so there's, there's a story. I haven't told it too, pu- too much publicly, but, but I will hear. Um, I, uh, I, I was actually on the verge of going to Google uh, out of Red Hat. Uh, I, I, I saw I was working in the Istio uh, community, and um, you know we started talking with, with with them, and it just it just seemed like a logical next step for me to go work on Istio at Google. And uh, I had an offer. I was about to sign it, and then so that was a Thursday that I had that I, I got the offer. I was going to sign it on a Friday, but. My in-laws were in town, so I was like, ah, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it next week. And um, that Sunday is, uh, I think it was October 28th, 2018, is when the uh, IBM acquisition of, a, of Red Hat got it leaked or announced or whatever it was. And, uh, and that, was, that was quite shocking, I think, to everyone at Red Hat. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people started reaching out. You know, what do you think about this? I, I can't believe you're going to go work for IBM, blah, 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 blah. And for the most part, I was like, that's not going to affect me. I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving anyway. And, uh, and one of those people who reached out was Edith Levine, the founder of, of Solo. And uh, she, you know, we, we, I, I, I took a call with her. I knew her. And, uh, and I took a call just to catch up. And she's, she told me what she's working on, this application networking space. And, uh, which is what I was really interested in. And I, uh, you know, I thought, well, what? I have never gone to work for a very early stage startup in a field that I did, I personally believed is going to be, you know, that next thing on Kubernetes. And, um, so I thought about it. My, uh, my wife, my family, everybody said, you got you to go to my financial advisor. You got to go to Google. You got to go. You can't, you can't take a risk. Um, and, uh, and I talked to the hiring director at Google and he said, look, I went to an early stage startup in my, in, in my career. I learned so much. I would never change that. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. Um, if it doesn't work out, come back. So I said, all right, well, I guess that's, uh, if I have a, if I have a fallback, then it's worth, it's worth the risk. Let's, let's try and see what happens. And then, yeah, going to, you know, very, very small, few number of people uh, where, uh, you know, we were just, we were just, we had some open source projects and uh, we were just coming out with the product, just trying to build the sales and marketing team, uh, trying to build the the field engineering and support team. You know, that was, I, I remember vividly at Red Hat, I would get, you know, hundreds of emails or whatever. In the morning, I would wake up and just, all right, time to filter through the emails. At Solo during that first probably six months, a year maybe, I didn't get any emails. It was refreshing. I had all this time to work on stuff and actually <laughs> uh, build stuff and uh, and talk with customers and understand where the real problems are and so on. Um, and then now, yeah, like I guess we're uh, well over 100 people and growing. Um, 
you know, one, one, one thing I did want to point out, though, yeah, we took a lot of money in Series C, but we didn't. It, it was funny. We had more money in the bank before our Series C than we did after our Series B. Um, and that's, that's just a testament to, uh, you know, the, the work we're doing with our customers, the value they see, partnerships we build, and so on. So the VCs basically came and saying, hey, here, you know, take it. Um, but even before that, we were hiring. Well, that's one thing that I really am very proud of here at Solo is that we built a team of really amazing people. They're, you know, world-class, best of what they do. They are, you know, there's a humility or team, you know, aspect to what, what we've built here. There's no people walking around, you know, arrogant and, hey, I did this, I do this, I did that, this. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're very close-knit family type uh, organization. And, um, you know, before this series, this is why I'm bringing it up, like, to get those kind of people, you have to, you know, be fair with compensation or, you know, exceed market value. And uh, we've always, we've always, uh, we, we want to get good people and they cost what they cost. Um, and it's more important to us to get good people and build a very strong engineering and technical company um, that understands the tech and, you know, understands the problems and can help push the innovation. Uh, we don't want to get caught stagnant. Uh, and I don't think with Adit and her vision and all our people, I don't think that'll ever happen. But um, that's, uh, yeah, now now we're uh, Series C. Let's go from whatever it is, over 100 to over 200 uh, people, 250 or whatever, and, and continue to build out the organization. And it's been a very uh, fun ride. I'm glad I made this decision. And, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, see, we'll see see where it goes. Um, yeah, it's a, a very nice story to to hear in the startup world, especially using open source. Um, and I can, you know, tell you, well, as you know already, that just because you're creating an open source project and everybody can just come and download what you've, all the work that you've done for years, you know, I have five plus years in uh, the Zoom platform that, that I've worked on. It doesn't guarantee success. And even if you are successful in number of developers using it, it doesn't mean that you're going to survive financially. So, um, you know, th yeah. those are actually complete, two completely different things. Um, but you know, your financial position, I guess you're even because of the, the series C money, you're actually now considered a, a unicorn, right? I mean, you have over a $1 billion valuation. Right. So boom, <laughs> what is that? In three years, That's the company right. has existed yeah. or something like that. Solo's existed in uh, over five years now, but I joined over three years ago. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So pretty amazing. Um, and it seems like the big investors invest in companies who are looking not as being an acquisition target, but really like soaring on their own, right? Like this is going to be, yeah, go all the way. So go all the way. Right. Yeah. I mean, our, our initial investors, um, are the, the same that invested in in uh, in HashiCorp. Our Series C investor, uh, they're the ones that invested in Confluent and GitLab and Snowflake and others. So, um, yeah, we're, we we see the the disruption happening in the networking space, uh, the tremendous opportunity continued. Uh, for that disruption, and 
we uh, yeah we're looking at uh, the, the the long game. Good, good. And um, uh, now let's okay. We're both excited about business when you have C at the beginning of your title, right? <laughs> so of your role. I mean, it means you're a business person. Hopefully, you are. And and a business person in technology. That's a very powerful, you know, um, individual to have on your on your team. Now let's well switch back to technology a bit, I guess. Um, so Istio uh, as a service mesh in general, um, the Envoy proxy, and of course the Glue API gateway, which we use with um, we offer with uh, um, the Zoom platform. Um, and thanks for your help on getting that up and running. Yeah, um, sure. So so. Um, you know, okay, Istio as a service mesh, can you describe very, you know, sort of specifically, what are the um, the primary benefits of using a service mesh over using uh, Kubernetes on its own? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Kubernetes does do... You know, as part of, because I, I mentioned Docker was for packaging, Kubernetes kind of ha, well, gives an abstraction of, of, a, of an application or service that's running across multiple machines. And to do that, you know, Kubernetes does have some very simple primitives for describing what is a service. It actually has an API called service. And, uh, and how things connect through um, things like service discovery, and load balancing, Kubernetes can do that, that basic stuff in the service-to-service -service or east-west uh, direction. Now, when it comes to specifying things like when a, when a service wants to talk to another service, it, um, it needs to be mindful of things like timeouts, right? Uh, things like maybe, maybe a request fails and it's appropriate to retry. So it should it should retry this request a certain number of times. Uh, maybe if it's experiencing request failures, it should you know stop calling a service for a period of time, and then slowly you know try to see you know make, maybe make more calls and see whether or not the service is up and available, or it should just fail over somehow to a different service. Maybe it can only call that service you know five times a minute because it's, it's expected to be overloaded, or there's a, um, a policy or a quota, uh, a contract, SLA, or something in, in place. Um, and maybe that service is only allowed to call the other service for you know, a certain period of the day, and, um, and, and, and on and on and on, right? There's, there's all these policies about how services should connect and sh services should communicate with each other. And uh, in the past, the way we solved that problem, so Kubernetes doesn't solve that problem. Um, in the past, the way we solved it is either put, stand up a big, you know, an API management thing, and we'll just force all the traffic through the API management thing. Um, but in Kubernetes, it kind of doesn't make that, that good sense, right? Because if there's a, there's a pod running in one namespace and a pod running in another namespace, and those maybe those things happen to be on the same machine. Uh, forcing all the traffic back out through, let's say, first of all, it probably has to go through some sort of load balancer. Then it needs to go into the uh, 
uh, API management system. Then it probably needs to go into another load balancer and then maybe into an ingress into Kubernetes and then eventually, so that doesn't make much sense. Um, and so what the, what the service mesh allows you to do is number one, and this is the, that's why I love, uh, Eric, Eric Brewer wrote the forward for my book. And I, I love how succinctly he put this, this concept, which was the service mesh. Yeah. It does a bunch of networking stuff, but really what it does is it allows you to codify the policies that need to be, you know, upheld in the service to service interaction. Um, and allow you to, to so declaratively define those and make changes to those at runtime without changing the code, without changing the applications, um, without this, you know, extra hops and all this stuff. It's think of it as though it's part of the application, but you can affect it through configuration and it's not actually in the application code. So if you make changes, you can make changes dynamically and, uh, and uh, reactively and, and so on. Uh, so this, the service mesh provides a layer of networking on top of application networking on top of Kubernetes. And it's the, the big reason for it being there is that it's policy driven and it's configuration as data driven. Um, and, and so that, that forms the foundation of if you're trying to build a platform to enable developers to go quickly and kind of offload some of the responsibility of non-functional requirements around, you know, like I mentioned, highly high availability, um, fault tolerance, failover, uh, telemetry collection, this kind of stuff that can happen in between the applications and control that and make changes faster then you're going to support the ability to get code out faster, um, reduce the blast radius because maybe you can control the traffic routing and so on uh, if there are ba bad things that happen. It, you know, reduce the mean time to recovery because you have all this telemetry, you understand what the baselines are, you're, you're able to understand the tracing and where things are slowing down and that kind of thing. Um, so the service mesh really is a programmable application network that lives on top of Kubernetes that enables you know, platform service owners or platform owners to uh, to provide a, a service to their developers that allow them to go faster. That is probably the best explanation I've I've heard. That's uh, <laughs> really really awesome. But um and and but I think where I mean that all that said, what's so elegant about it is to the application or the microservice, however you want to look at it, it's just the network, right? Right, right. And, exactly. and so and so you get all this stuff without the application itself having to know everything that's going on. So it's not like it's providing assistance to the service mesh in some way. It just says, you know, like send out a network call of some kind or, or request or whatever it happens to be and boom, right? It's just, it happens. Exactly, exactly, yep. And then so that developers focus on what is the differentiating logic that they care about? If a request fails, all right, the app, that might be a business problem, business logic that decides, well, if a call fails, if I can't reach an app, then I got to do something else. Um, now, that's, that's business code. F figure, like, uh, maybe I need to call a different service, or maybe I return something from a cache, or I return a, you know, a static response or something, right? So, but, but then that, that part of the equation 
is where developers, uh, you know, come in and uh, provide their expertise for, well, okay, now this is what the business wants. This is how the domain model looks. This is how, you know, the, the, uh, the, the system is supposed to behave in terms of business requirements. Um, the networking pieces, the security pieces, um, that doesn't have to be intermingled and intertwined into the, into the code. The dependencies and transitive dependency, all this stuff that you have to uh, maintain to get that uh, get that working nicely. And then, like like I said, across languages, across frameworks, implementing that that application networking functionality consistently uh, across you Node.js know, and Java and you know whatever, pick any of your platforms. You know that that becomes a huge burden to try to do that in the application code. Um, so yeah, I would ideally try to simplify some of those areas. Very nice. Um, and, and frankly, for me personally, I could be into Kubernetes and I could be into Istio and I could, but in the business world that I'm in, I'm helping people create better applications and services that are domain driven. Right. And so yeah, for me, yeah. I am really happy to just be able to point a, a client to solo and say, there you go. This is what you need, right? Makes me really happy to, to be able to do that. Um, and what about the uh, Envoy proxy? Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah, so Envoy is, uh, that's sort of the workhorse of the engine or the, obviously, you know, it has proxy in the name, but that's the, that's the component that lives on the request path. Um, and so in a, in a service mesh, the, uh, Envoy proxy is deployed. This, this is the typical pattern that, that you see in a, in a service mesh, which is, uh, it's known as the sidecar or the, uh, you know, this is, this is the service proxy that gets deployed with each application instance and acts and behaves as though it's part of the application, right? But when a, when a, an application talks out over the network, it actually first talks through its, its local proxy. The proxy is what implements traffic routing, telemetry collection. It might originate TLS or mutual TLS connections. Uh, it might enforce rate limiting policies. These type of things can be enforced in, in this proxy. Um, and, and, so, and so Envoy is an open source project. I think it was donated to the CNCF out of Lyft back in 2016 or so, 2016 or 2017, so in that time frame. Um, and it's sort of become the, the foundation for this type of modern application networking. So from gateways, so, um, you know, you mentioned you're using GlueEdge. The GlueEdge gateway is built on Envoy proxy. A lot of the service meshes are built on Envoy it's kind of where the community has converged uh, around this, this next generation te uh, proxy technology. It, very similar to Kubernetes, I would say, it, it was built on this idea of extensibility, of um, dy dynamicism, um, and, uh, and, and this is where the innovations happen. You get things like HTTP3 coming out of uh, Envoy. You get, Things like WebAssembly extensions coming out of Envoy. So Envoy is the is the foundation, um, and is very versatile. Can be run in the sidecar service mesh mode. Can be run as an edge gateway. Can be run as a shared gateway. Um, and, and in fact, one of the things that we're 
we're working on it solo is enabling the service mesh, the data plane, or it's what we call these proxies. It's a bunch of these proxies that, that form the mesh, the data plane, to be a little bit more, um, more flexibility in how you deploy the, the proxy. So right now, sidecar and deploying one proxy per instance is sort of the service mesh model, but that doesn't have to be. Um, you can have uh, maybe per host, per uh, node proxies, and all the applications talk to that proxy. You could have uh, what's called per service account. So in Kubernetes, a notion of service account, you could have a proxy per service account. And so in, once you start to get very large deployments of service mesh, there's room to optimize the placement and overhead of the proxies. And um, you know, we're, we're, that, that's one thing we want to enable and, and give to our, our customers so that you know, a uh, 10,000 instance deployment of your fleet of services doesn't have to have 10,000 proxies if, uh, if you know, you're willing to make those trade-offs. But there are, there are trade-offs there uh, from isolation to security and resource overhead and all that stuff that uh, you know, we, we want to we give those options to our, our customers, our users. Nice. So probably the one kind of objection or something, or at least, you know, not, not as favorable, um, uh, situation with, um, a service mesh is that there's the extra network hop, right? In other words, there's the, there's the application or service that is, that is talking to the sidecar itself. Um, and a, just really a, a very basic question for me, um, has, I suppose someone has thought of just bolting the sidecar on into the application space. So it's a library, right? And now we make network calls and we just simply inter intercept TCP, whatever. And why, uh, is that possible in the future or why is the sidecar with the extra hop actually really necessary? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I gave a talk back in uh, November 2019 at Service MeshCon, I think that was in San Diego, uh, before the pandemic and all this stuff, called uh, The Truth About the Service Mesh Data Plane. And the point of that talk was, you know, the, the interesting bit about the service mesh is those declarative policies, like I said, right? Um, can you make changes to the application networking behavior by changing some configuration? And that's primarily exposed through the control plane part of the service mesh. How things actually get implemented then becomes an operational set of trade-offs. Um, and in that talk, I pointed out that, sure, sidecar is, is the model today. Because um, it's the easiest, it's transparent to the application and so on. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, there, there's, there's trade-offs for that. On the other end of the spectrum, so having it run uh, outside the application, but now the other end of the spectrum is you could have a set of libraries that for extremely, let's say maybe latency or certain types of performance, performance use cases and optimizations, maybe you just need a subset of the capabilities. Maybe you just need load balancing or mutual TLS or something. Could you optimize the proxy away? Um, and that can come in a couple different forms. One, it could come in application library 
for sure. And actually, gRPC, um, the gRPC library actually does implement the API for the Istio control plane so that you can run limited functionality in a proxyless configuration. So that's, that's one option. Um, and then the, the second is, can you run the sidecar with the application and eliminate the networking hops? Uh, and that's something that we're working on at, at Solo uh, with the usage of a technology called eBPF. eBPF is a way of extending the kernel uh, and specifically for networking, bypassing, you know, optimizing the networking paths between a couple, you know, in this case, two processes, but, uh, you know, the proxy and the application. So can we have a direct connection, not going through the TCP IP stack, uh, local host and all that stuff, between proxy and the application? So, you know, that, that is something that we can do. And then the third is, uh, you know, um, there, the, one, of, one, of, one area where there are performance overheads um, is in, it's actually not in the networking stack, it's actually in the context switching between the, the proxy and the, uh, and the applications. Um, and so there are areas that we're exploring where we might be able to, uh, like you said, bolt the, the proxy into the application. Uh, but those, those, are, those are still pretty, pretty early days. But I do want to point out that um, the, the performance overhead from the proxy, either in terms of actual the cycles the proxy is, is taking or the networking stack uh, overhead for the types of applications that we're talking about is almost nil. Right, we're talking about Java applications, or you know, these these big enterprise applications or services that they're building, and so on. Um, and uh, and what we've what we've found is that 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 is almost never the limiting factor um, with with respect to performance. And there are definitely like we work with um, a very very large financial institutions running this as you know tier zero operation, you know, criticality. And, um, you know, they're swiping cards on credit card networks and all this stuff. And it's extremely, extremely important. Um, and in, in those areas, we've been able to optimize uh, the, the data plane how, how, sufficiently to, to fit those very tight performance envelopes. So, um, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's generally a, uh, a conversational thing. Let's talk about, you know, the overhead and the service mesh, but in practical senses it's not we, we don't see that for unless you're like you know what is it what are those trading platforms that need you know millisecond or microseconds or nanoseconds of uh, latency overhead and all that stuff but we usually, usually don't see those in the in the enterprise space yeah and uh, again very good explanation and um you know for that matter this is another reason why companies need to go to solo the experts because if you need to melt away the network overhead, you can yep. do that, right? So Absolutely. we've already proven it. So yeah. Absolutely. This is our area of expertise. Yep. Right. Exactly. So um now I think most of us, you know, me, myself included, and and listeners will know a fair amount at least about um GraphQL and what it can do, or at least have a, you know, either a cursory knowledge or or some sort of uh, even you know, level of expertise in it, but what 
in the world is EBPF. And what does it do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so EBPF is a uh, binary instruction format uh, that uh, can be used to extend the capabilities of the of the kernel. Um, and uh, so, you know, as you go down lower into the uh, the stack and into the operating system, you'll find that the Linux kernel does some pretty amazing things. Um, but it's incredibly difficult to make changes to the behavior of the Linux kernel, um, you know, on the order of years to get changes in. Uh, but what they've done is they've put in, let's call it a set of hooks or callbacks that at different points in the, uh, the execution of the system calls that you can call back into a, uh, a platform called uh, Extended Ber Berkeley Packet uh, Filtering. And uh, so what that means as, a, as an end user, you can write snippets of code that uh, then can get injected into the kernel to take advantage of those callbacks. Uh, so like if a, uh, a, a packet arrives on a network uh, interface, callback to this, this callback. And so if you can write, you can, you can write eBPF uh, programs that then get ex injected into the, into the kernel that say, well, all right, this packet arrived here. Uh, it's supposed to go, you know, on its next step through the networking stack, we're going to bypass that. Maybe we'll send it directly off to the application uh, or we'll reroute it somewhere. Uh, and that's just at the networking layer. eBPF extends to all areas of the of the Linux kernel, but um, it gives you it gives you know pe people like like Solo at least who are writing these uh, uh, networking uh, this networking infrastructure. It gives us a lot more control over the the routing, the security. We can we can capture telemetry about what's happening at the lower layers of the stack uh, to optimize. Things like what we were talking about, um, optimizing the, the the routing paths between the application and the proxy, um, forcing, you know, may, maybe we don't want to deploy a proxy per application instance, but anytime the application talks, may, maybe if we want to share the proxy across all the applications on a single host, we need to have isolation and we need to have guarantees that when the application talks to the network, that it always goes to the proxy. And so using eBPF, we can, we can force and control that, uh, that, that networking to happen. Um, and, so the, and there's a lot of other things that, that, that we can do, but really it's, a, it's an extension mechanism that allows you to more finely control the behavior of the uh, operating system, especially for us around networking. Wow, that's really powerful and safe, I'm sure, right? I yep. mean, in other words, you're not going to crash the kernel by... Exactly. I mean, the, there are limitations to eBPF, in terms of uh, what programs you can write uh, because of that, that exactly, that, that thing. Um, so there's a verifier step and all this, uh, all this it's uh, not Turing complete and on purpose. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a safe way to extend the capabilities of the, of the Linux kernel. Yeah, super. Um, okay, so Solo has, you know, their, their ICO mesh is open source. So how 
realistic is it for um, a large enterprise or even a startup to go download, you know, the service mesh and Envoy Proxy and da 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 da, right? And start using it, try it out without, you know, first going into a year or year's contract with with Solo. Is that really practical to do? Do they read your book and go like, oh, okay, this is how I would do that? Or, or how does that work? <laughs> yeah. So the open source projects that we, uh, that we build on are, so Envoy Proxy, uh, as we've been talking, is an open source CNCF project. Anybody can go start playing with Envoy. Uh, Istio is an uh, open source uh, project. It's been around for five years now. A uh, lot of contribution from large vendors and and users, and that anybody can go uh, start using Istio. Now, what we focus on is uh, we have we have two main products, I guess, at at Solo. Both of them also have open source uh, foundations. So Glue Edge, our API gateway, we take Envoy, we add some some Envoy filters. So as I mentioned before, Envoy is highly extensible and is written in C++. So what we've done is we've written some extensible uh, extension filters to Envoy and we package that as, uh, as a distribution. And we also provide a control plane for Envoy. So Envoy needs to be configured somehow and in a cloud environment, control plane dynamically you know, keeps the updates on what services are available, what endpoints are available, what are the policies, what's the configuration supposed to be, and feeds that into the data plane into Envoy Proxy. Right, so Glue Edge open source is those, those components, right? Some extensions and the control plane. Glue Edge Enterprise takes the open source Glue Edge and adds additional components and capabilities like um, OIDC security or API key-based uh, security, LDAP, open policy agent, rate limiting, these types, of, a developer portal, multi-cluster federation. So more of those enterprise use case, you know, features that they would need. Glue Mesh has the same thing. It has an open source component, builds on top of Istio. And then the enterprise capabilities are things like multi-tenancy, all right? How do you implement multi-tenancy? Uh, things like WebAssembly, extension, uh, extensions for WebAssembly. Um, you know, multi-cluster, a very secure multi-cluster configuration management uh, and automation. Um, we can unify, we can actually bring the Edge Gateway and put it on top of Istio and kind of unify that, what is an API Gateway? What is a service mesh? It's just all the same thing. It's just services and APIs connecting, right? Whether it's coming into the cluster or leaving the cluster or in between the cluster, like uh, Glue Mesh Enterprise does a good job of unifying those, uh, those, those APIs. And then the enterprise version also has Istio support. Uh, taking and running, anybody can go take and run Istio. Definitely go buy my book and learn about it. Uh, but when you run this at scale and you need someone to call in the middle of the night when things start failing or you know, Envoy, Envoy is awesome, but just like any technology on the request path, you're going to have CVEs, you're going to have vulnerabilities, you're going to have these, and you got to patch them. Uh, and we provide long-term support for Envoy, long-term support for Istio, and, uh, and the expertise to make you successful. And that, that's one thing that uh, I, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a proud of the team that we've built, but I'm also proud of the way that we work with our customers. We don't just sell them you know, a bag of tools and walk off. We, we're there. We have a customer success team. We're invested in, and we want you to be successful. This stuff can be complicated, but you know, there's no better, no better people in the world to be talking, working with than, than us uh, to, to make you successful. Uh, so it's an open core model. We have the expertise to make you successful. Um, and we're working with some of the largest deployments of this technology in, in the world today. Uh, a lot of which we've, 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 talk, we've talked about at our customer conference or you go, go to ServiceMeshCon, go to IstioCon. You're going to see a lot of those talks are from solo people or solo customers. because um, we're, we're, we're definitely leading the, the, leading the market in this space and the, and the open source communities around it. And um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you definitely start with open source, but as you get into the enterprise, um, there's, there's a lot of value that, that we provide. Compelling story, Christian. Um, thank you. And I have to say that Eric Brewer writing your forward, I don't know, probably <laughs> can't get better than that. I'm not sure, but um, probably not. So um, what, uh, what kind of topics in, in general do you cover in the, in the book? Yeah, we're very grateful to have uh, Eric uh, write the forward. You know, he's been very instrumental in the innovation in the distributed systems space. Uh, a lot of the things that are happening at Google, uh, so definitely very, very thankful for that. But we, we cover, so Istio's been out for a while. It took about three and a half years to write this book. Uh, halfway through, I sort of got, you know, building and running a startup is, is uh, itself more than a full-time job. So it kind of, kind of um, you know, took away some of the time and um, focus, I would say, from, from writing the book. So then we brought in uh, Renor, um, who is my co-author, to help, uh, help, help push the journey along. And uh, we definitely make a, an effort to help people understand from a very beginner inter, you know, level, what is a service mesh and why you might need it. Um, but we also go into intermediate and advanced topics as well. Um, We've, we've, Renard and I have both been working with the, uh, uh, our service, our Istio customers, either at Solo and before that at Red Hat and so on. So we have uh, a lot of practical experience that, uh, you know, we cover obviously installing Istio and setting up the ingress gateways. Um, security is a very big, big and important part of, uh, of the implementation extensibility, how do you extend the capabilities of, of the service mesh? You put something like this in place, you realize, well, this does a lot of good stuff, but it only does 85% of the stuff that I need because I'm a big bank and I've been around for 100 years and I have you know, way, all this other stuff that uh, you know, service mesh would have never thought of. I need a way to extend those capabilities. So you know, we cover extensibility, uh, some of the operational day two aspects. Um, yeah, and like I said, there's there's definitely a good balance of material for uh, people who are either brand new to service mesh, brand new to Istio, as well as, you know, I've, I've been using Istio for two and a half years already in production. Uh, there's still, still uh, applicable uh, stuff to share in, in there. I'm trying to think of anything that I may have uh, forgotten. Pro maybe the only thing is just like, okay, if you want to run the, the solo suite of tools, uh, products on, AWS on Google Cloud Platform on Azure on uh, 
you know, whatever is, I guess that's all just seamless. It is. It's very straightforward. We follow a very Kubernetes uh, focused uh, configuration model. So it's declared, all of the pieces are declarative configuration, custom resources on Kubernetes, but it's not limited to just Kubernetes. You can plug in VMs and, and other, you know, from our edge gateway, you call out to Amazon Lambdas and functions of service. And so we, we take a applic so I tell people, Solo is not a gateway company or a service mesh company. We're an application networking company. And however applications can communicate over the network, we can provide a lot of value. And that and then deploy from there your applications wherever you want and need. And uh, and then we'll take on the responsibility of you know gluing then <laughs> connecting the dots, hence the name in the in, in the product. But yeah, we have customers run on Azure. GKE or you know Google Cloud, AWS, on-premises, a lot of OpenShift users, um, you know so Rancher, uh, you know maybe do vanilla Kubernetes, um, and uh, any of those platforms. Actually, at SoloCon last week, we had Google Cloud come in and talk. We had AWS come and come and speak with us, um, and so yeah, there's there's good synergies for running on any of those clouds. Superb. Well, I've really enjoyed this, uh, Christian. So let it be known, I'm not uh, I'm not an enemy of Kubernetes. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just like I just like balance, you know. And Kubernetes Absolutely. does good stuff. The service mesh or the network expertise does so much, but we still got to write sound services and we got to talk to the business like serious talk. And oh, absolutely! Innovation everywhere. Absolutely, all this stuff. Right, innovation everywhere at every level. Absolutely, and outcomes, right? That's uh, that's that's what we're after. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's awesome. I very much appreciate you having uh, having me on, and um, even even being on, just more more importantly, talking again, and just uh, you know, uh, catching up again. It's a pleasure. Uh, hopefully, I don't know. Things seem to be opening up more and more. Who knows? Um, maybe we'll have a chance to meet face to face again soon. So. Yeah, I would love that. You're still in the Phoenix area, yep, right? Yep, right north of you. Yeah. So very good. Yeah. Yep. Looking forward. Let's to. let's plan on it. Okay. Take care, Christian. All right, Vaughn. Thanks. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K A 
L E L E dot I O. Thanks for listening.